Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Yes, a good morning to you, a good afternoon to you, or a good evening to you, however you may be listening and wherever you may be listening. This is the Man on the Post podcast. Once again, I think this should be a regular thing. We're on a Monday yet again. Maybe we should make the uh, make it a permanent change from Sunday to Monday. You never know. Let's just see how the schedule works from here on out. Uh, it is the international break. when That's when most football fans decide to take a weekend off, but not us at the Man on the Post podcast. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, we're busy, just as everybody else should be. Uh, now it's an excellent time to uh, introduce our uh, panel for tonight. Uh, I'll start off introducing James, our resident Netherlands correspondent. James, how are you? Good afternoon, fellas. How are you both? Good. How, did you uh, survive the, um, the mass brawl that was Amsterdam on Friday night? Yes, I did. I can uh, give uh, listeners uh, some... Um some facts and figures as to what exactly happened because uh, no doubt they've had um, English reports on different media channels which is fine but obviously with the no- local knowledge here I might be able to give them a different insight indeed we'll get we'll definitely get we'll definitely get on to that and also joining us um, from much further afield in wherever it is Colin lives is Colin I'm, I'm in Essex it is Essex um, I thought it was for some reason I thought it was Yorkshire but well, from Yorkshire yeah, that's why isn't it yeah. I might, I might trip you out occasionally because, um, yeah, sometimes I'm in Yorkshire, sometimes I'm in Essex, but uh, normally, normally in Chelmsford. Normally so, in Chelmsford. Uh, yeah, right. Good to be here and, uh, yeah, looking forward to the podcast. Good. Right. So, uh, well, as I've sort of uh, preempted, uh, the first topic of tonight is going to be uh, England versus, well, Netherlands, the Netherlands versus England. And uh, James, do we want to start with reviewing what happened off the pitch first, or what happened on the pitch first? Um, I think it's best to start with what happened off the pitch first. Off the pitch first, okay, yeah. okay. In which case, I'm sure everyone has seen uh, social media has blown up in the way that social media tends to blow up in these sort of things. The scenes that um, seem to follow England at every away game, but for some reason, this seemed just a tad different. Um, as I've said, James, you were much closer to the situation than most of us were. So could you just give us a Was there an expectation in Holland, in the Netherlands, that this was going to happen? Or did it very much take people by surprise? It very much took people by surprise, Matt. Um, Amsterdam is not the biggest city in the world. And naturally, uh, England fans, unfortunately, do have a reputation. Uh, there were 102 arrests over the course of the weekends, mainly for people um, um, disrupting public um, order. Uh, the current situation is that six uh, British uh, English fans are still banged up, uh, mainly for 
violence against stewards or police. Uh, people saw the uh, images of the guy jumping into the canal. Obviously, he wasn't aware of how uh, how filthy they are. I think he got completely caught up in the moment. And also, there's many bikes thrown into canals, so he, his, his landing must have hurt. Um, 60 of the 102 arrests were... Um, would take uh, took place in the famous red light district area of Amsterdam, so it just goes to show. And uh, yes, yeah, it's just very disappointing, really, for me as an Englishman, having lived in Amsterdam for more than a decade. You know, I've never had any trouble here, and you always treat everybody with respect, and you always, you know, try to go about your business in a in a nice, sane manner. And they were just um, jumping into canals, tipping beer over passers-by uh, that were coming by on the bikes and, uh, and on the canal boats and they've just shown themselves up really there's no need for it I mean, I've been to international games here in the Netherlands against France and against Italy and against Belgium and the Czech Republic and we've never had any problems like that and then England unfortunately show up and uh, and everybody knows what the situation was unfortunately that was going to be that was going to be my next sort of question so is this the first time since you've been since you've been in Holland, in the Netherlands, that there's been any trouble caused by away supporters? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I've been attending uh, international games for quite some time. My last, uh, most recent international I attended was uh, Sweden last October. And um, as I said, the, uh, the experiences I've had, there's always been a jovial atmosphere. There's always been a friendly atmosphere. And this is the first time that a, an opponent has come to Amsterdam intent on on going overboard and be, uh, being overzealous, and it's just unfortunate, really. Yeah, one thing that sort of surprised me is this is Amsterdam, you know, famous for, let's say, the green stuff on a sort of legal level. Surely that's what you'd want to be doing. You can get drunk anywhere, but only in one place within Europe can you actually get high. Surely that's the thing you'd want to do rather than get drunk, and that would cause a lot less problems. Well, I was on the uh, England Free Lions podcast giving a Dutch perspective um, to the game. And one of the questions I was asked was, what can England, England fans do in Amsterdam? And trying to get a broad perspective of, of the different things you can do and that football fans come in all different shapes and sizes and full of different interests as well. I always said about, you know, going to uh, Van Gogh Museum or the Anne Frank Museum or, or going shopping in the Kalverstraat, for example, or, or taking a nice walk uh, through the Westerpark or the Vondelpark. But obviously, you know, people just wanted to drink themselves silly. And, um, yeah, I just think they, they got caught up um, in in the moment, in what they were doing. Obviously, it being a game on a Friday night where people could stay for the weekend, they obviously got a little bit ahead of themselves but it's um it's a shame really and um i think uh, later on in the year when the netherlands entertain france and germany and the, the nations league i can't see these uh, scenes being repeated at all okay. colin what, what was your sort of take on the whole thing do you i mean obviously the the guy jumping in the in the canal as dangerous as it is for him you know that that's some level of good nature it's no different really to where various fans jump in the uh, fountain in Trafalgar Square in London. That's just having a bit of fun. But obviously a line was crossed when they started turning on the locals and turning on the stewards. Uh, Colin, what was your sort of view as an outsider to this? I mean, I, I think it looked ugly. Um, I mean, some of the things I saw, I think some people have to take a good hard look at themselves 
um, the way the the Dutch people antagonise the the English fans, and um, you, I'm, I'm being the best. Yeah, right. Um, look, hey, what, what I would say is, I think that. I, I mean, I'm completely with you, James. I, I, I know what you mean. It wasn't nice. And, and there's lots of English people who go to Holland and enjoy the Anne Frank Museum and everything like that. Most of the guys who were there in England shirts don't even know who Anne Frank is. Yeah, Do you I'd know agree, what I mean? I agree with right? that, yeah. I mean, and, and at the end, I mean, you alluded to it as well, Matthew. I mean, come on, let's not... Let's not make Amsterdam out as if it's like all windmills and clogs and people on bicycles, right? It's, it's got its own problems as well, right? I mean, Amsterdam as a city is a bit of a den of iniquity, you know, that stinks of prostitution and drugs. Do you know what I mean? So, it, I mean, it's a beautiful city at times, um, but I do think that it's an easy story, isn't it? Whenever a, so, so basically what this is, is the blokes basically getting done for drunken sordidly, which is when that happens in England, that's like that's a caution on your way. Do you know what I mean? And we've made something out of it as if like someone's been killed or something like that. I think obviously it's bad, um, but I. I don't know. I mean, I think maybe the. I don't know. I, I'm not. I don't want to get into politics and go on to the whole Brexit thing and what's there. But I think there was a bit of disenchantment. Um, dare I say, the the working slash middle class levels. I, I know I'm I'm one of them in in England, and I think a lot of just a lot of English people are just pissed off, really, and 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 that showed. Um, beer was flowing. Amsterdam's a, an excellent name. Um, and, okay, yeah, it, it, it wasn't great, was it? But no one really got hurt. I'm sure there was a lot of other crimes in Amsterdam that night that were committed by Dutch people. Um, so I take it with a pinch of salt. The, the only thing I would say is that this was a warm-up game. For England for the World Cup, and potentially it's a warm-up game for the fans. If you see what I mean, yeah. Are they are they making their own contacts and getting their together? You know, you know when you know the the London rivalries all of a sudden disappear and they all become one gang. Do, do you know what I mean? Is 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 this because England are expecting like a bit of a rough ride from the fans' perspective in Russia? Are they sort of setting out their stall that here we are, we're big and hard, you know, we'll take you all on? I, I don't know. So you're so you're saying this was more of a a, a message to the Russian, a message to the Russian fans, because again, you've said that everyone's expecting all the Russian fans to attack English fans in the World Cup from every angle, from every alley, whereas this is now the England fans saying, right, if you want some, this is what we can do. Well, I, I, not not really. I mean, I, I think some people have taken it a bit serious, and and like you know, FIFA are not gonna sanction England for some fans outside of the ground, nothing to do with the football match, throwing 
a pint of Heineken over some passers-by on a boat, right? With all due respect, it's, it's awful, right? Yeah. I've got that. But I'm not being funny. Um, when, even in England, right, when there's certain clubs in town, you don't go out. Because you know there's going to be a load of arseholes there. Similarly, if you're Dutch and, you know, you live in Amsterdam and you know the England fans are coming, well, do you know what? Stay or go somewhere else. Do you know what I mean? Because it's not that they're particularly nasty, they're just a bit... Twats. Yes, yes, (laughs) arseholes, yes. Yeah, right. Uh, I think that more or less covers it. Um, what happened off the field. I don't want to spend too much time on it. Uh, now we'll uh, switch our attention to what happened on the field. And the main question is, everyone seemed to be very impressed by what Gareth Southgate did on Friday night. Uh, he was trying out a new system. Carl Walker at right centre-back seemed to blow everybody's mind as if something that could never happen and will not ever happen again. But... Everyone seemed to be impressed. There was a, the attitude of the English players was right, and everything you know, you could see the system, and you could see what a game plan. You could see everything that Gareth Southgate had installed. And my question is: Is this finally England's year, two thousand eighteen, or is this just the blueprint and the uh, groundwork, rather? For 2022, which everyone laughed when I think it was Greg Dyke, it may have been Greg Clark, one of the guys at the FA, said, you know, our aim is to win the World Cup in 2022. So is this, you know, have England peaked already? Could they do it in 2018? Or is there still work to be done? Uh, Colin, I'll go with you. Oof, wow. Um, Is this England's year? Um, it sounds to me, Matthew, that you might have been to Amsterdam and been uh, <laughs> experimenting with some of the green stuff. Um, I, I don't, I don't know where that game was not a million miles away from being a, a nil-nil draw. Um, it wasn't also a million miles away from being a, a Dutch win uh, for Holland. So, um, yeah, it's good that you know England have been. Holland for however long it's been since since it last happened, um, but what we're meant to take uh, we're meant to take satisfaction in the fact that all oh, right that Gareth Southgate's done his job for a change and we've actually you know he's he's put some tactical you know nows together. Um, I'd say what did we learn really from an England perspective? Um, Harry Kane wasn't in there. He will be. Um, the goalkeeper, no matter what anybody says, I think he's absolutely ropey. Um, and I, I just think, I mean, I'm not being funny, but if I was um, a Germany or a Spain, I was watching that match, I, I think that Aiken. Um, what I would say is Holland looked bad. They, they looked poor. So poor teams do make mediocre teams look good. Um, but that being said, that is probably, uh, you know, the level that we should be expecting from, you know, the likes of Panama and Tunisia. So, 
I, I've got mixed feelings. It obviously it wasn't a dreadful game. Everybody likes to sort of dig into England and say, "Oh, dreadful!" No ideas. But I mean, I don't know if you're going to ask a question about what would your first eleven be for England, but I haven't got a clue. All right. Um, so a win is better than a loss, but I'm not getting carried away. Is 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 2018 England's year? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Okay, James, um, uh, Colin there saying that this wasn't a great Dutch side. Obviously, this was Ronald Koeman's first squad. But, you know, was did you think that uh, Holland gave England a good enough test for you know, uh, to base themselves on for going forward in the World Cup? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think it was, um, I think the Netherlands themselves didn't expect to lose that match. I think with the euphoria of having a new national team coach and, and Koeman being in charge and five debutants in the squad, I think everybody was expecting at least a draw. And uh, at the time of speaking, they're currently 1-0 up in a friendly against Swiss, against Portugal in Switzerland. Memphis Depay has scored, so the first goal of Koeman's reign has been scored by Memphis Depay. Um, I think it's, um, as I said before, it's a long road ahead for the Netherlands. This is, uh, this is an appointment which, which should have been made four years ago. So, that, you know, there's a lot of groundwork to be laid. There is no rush to get things right. It's about building a team to be able to compete. And you're not going to see signs of that within 90 minutes. And um, I think, uh, I think with, as regards to the question of will this be England's year, uh, no, I don't think so. I've, I don't think they're helping themselves neither by uh, not playing against teams from different continents in friendly games. I mean, shortly after the World Cup draw was made, uh, I've, I've uh, discovered the quote from the Tunisia manager and the quote was the following we're delighted to have drawn England because we have full confidence that we're going to beat them and um, Tunisia will provide a stern test in the opening game for England in Russia and if they was to look at different options to maybe even play Egypt or Morocco in that respect or or when you're looking at uh, uh, an upcoming game against Panama to maybe entertain um, uh, teams um, maybe the United States, for example, or Mexico, or teams that were in the same qualifying groups, which Panama managed to um, dispatch of to secure their qualifying place. Um, I think it's important to, for England to play friendlies against different continents as well, in different countries. I think that would serve them well going into a World Cup. You know, cause we've had to, in all the years I've been following England, from a, especially from afar, you know, it's always, oh, this will be our year. You know, the, the ingredients of we don't have many foreign players that are playing other leagues. We don't have um, players that have gone out of their comfort zone and attempted to become better players or have grown tactically and things like that. And all that, all those ingredients come together when you're in uh, when you're in tournament football. For example, being away from home. You know, if you're going to win a tournament, you're going to be away from home for six weeks. And with some, with the lavish lifestyles that some England players have you get the impression they don't want to be from, away from home for five minutes, let alone six weeks. Mm. So these kind of um, ingredients all need to come together and be much more um, be much more conducive before England can start talking about winning a major tournament again. I was going to say, you did mention about playing uh, friendlies against uh, countries from different continents. Uh, I've just looked at the FA website and they do have 
their last two games before the World Cup are Nigeria at Wembley and Costa Rica at, for some reason, Elland Road. So I think so they will be getting their sort of different uh, tastes of football, if you will, sort of much much closer to the tournament. Yeah, well, that's that's very important because these. Uh, but you, but preparation can always be started earlier. I mean, I, like with these two games against teams that didn't qualify for the World Cup, I would have much preferred to see one of these two friendly games against Egypt or Morocco personally, because um, I think the um, the Tunisian game, which is the opening game, yeah. I think that's going to be a lot tougher than what people anticipate. Yeah, you, you know, you know why the game's going to be at Ellen Road, don't you? The game prior to actually going to the World Cup. Is is, is this a serious point or is this a sarcastic yeah. point? Either way, yeah, it's fine. Because I, I, I think a lot of the well, if not all of the players um, that are in the England squad, very few of them will have played at Ellen Road. So it's sort of like a brand new stadium. And the atmosphere is going to be tasty. And I think the FA have got this one right. Um, it's just getting the players out of their sort of um, Wembley comfort. You know, because we all know what Wembley is. You know, I mean, it's, it's a great stadium and everything. But, you know, why have a plastic seat when you can have a leather one? Do you know what I mean? And I think it yeah. may be just sort of bring the guys down to earth a little bit. Um, the fans are really close to the pitch. Um, and they're going to be loud, and maybe it's a little bit in preparation for some of the, you know, stuff they might get in. Now, I'm not saying Russia is like Leeds, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think the the, the fans are definitely the fans are definitely on a similar level, though I would say. But um, yeah, but yeah. without without the. Um, Without the chemical weapons and <laughs> yeah, don't put it past them. But anyway, that does bring onto an interesting point. It wasn't gonna, it wasn't on the schedule, but I'll bring it up now. Um, James, just clarify: the Dutch do they have all their games in in the Amsterdam Arena, or do they travel around the country? Well, mainly for sponsorship purposes, the majority of um, of games qualifying games in the last few years have been in, in Amsterdam mm -hmm. they also have during certain qualifying campaigns switched to Rotterdam and in some cases Eindhoven, for example when they played San Marino a few years back that game was switched to Eindhoven uh, they are open to the idea of um, of going around the country again, especially because the, um, the atmosphere in the Kalp in Rotterdam is much more um, vicious in terms of creating an atmosphere which is difficult for the away nation to play in, whereas in the Amsterdam Lane it's a little bit sterile. And so they are open to that and I can I think I think we'll see that happening more and more in future. Okay. Like for, like for example you could you you could have also said for the England Netherlands game that was played in Amsterdam last Friday, you could have said that in theory they could have arranged that game for Rotterdam and that may have uh, given it a new um a new, a new dynamic in that respect. Exactly. Now that brings me on to Colin. Um, do you think England should go back to touring the country? Is this just a? You, you mentioned the Ellen Road. You you have your theory about it. Um, do you think that that's that? This is more of a test for. Let's see if we can go back to the the touring around the country like England did when uh, Wembley was being rebuilt. Um. First of all, it will never happen. 
it'll never happen because the FA is purely about one thing that's money mm-hmm. um, and as you know James mentioned that, that dictates where things are going to get pl- played you know um, is it better to travel the country absolutely 100% yeah I mean the last you know the, the times when you really saw the players really you know feed off the fans I think the last time I saw that was probably you know Old Trafford and there's absolutely no reason why England have to play in, in Wembley, you know, rather than Old Trafford. I mean, anybody who's been to Wembley knows that the, the best thing about it is the roads out of it, right? It's, it's an absolute dive, right? Um, it's only there because it was just built originally, okay? I, I know it's the home of football, potentially, but do you know what? I mean, if you want a bit of atmosphere... Do you know what I mean? We all know what it's like at Wembley. You know, with the um, Club Wembley seats always being empty, you know, the second half. You won't get that Old Trafford. You won't get that Villa Park. You won't get that St. James's Park, wherever you want it. Um, So, yeah, I think it would be good if it was going to tour the country. But, um, I mean, you know... you support Wales, don't you, Matthew? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Do you not think that when the FA, when Wembley was being rebuilt, when the FA Cup final was in Cardiff, that was actually worked really well. Yeah. It, that, it, yeah. That was a sort of reciprocal agreement because whilst the Cardiff Arms Park was being rebuilt back around the turn of the millennium, that's why it's the Millennium Stadium. There was a reciprocal agreement. Basically, all the Wales games would be played at Wembley. All the Welsh rugby games would be played at Wembley. Then knowing that in a couple of years' time, the FA are going to need a big stadium, so we'll switch it down to Cardiff. So that was so that was the agreement. That was that was the agreement in place. Mm. But my my point is that no yeah. one's ever said that because an FA Cup final was in Cardiff, it was any lesser a final or any worse a final than, than one that's at Wembley. Um, and, and I don't really subscribe to this view that Wembley is this sort of mecca for football. Um, but, opinion. Yeah. I will, I will admit that Wembley has sort of been the, the idea of the iconic you know, reaching Wembley has been detracted, you know, what with now every uh, FA Cup semi-final being played there, what with now Spurs uh, having to go there, uh, with Chelsea by all all looks of it going to Wembley as well for a year while Stamford Bridge gets redeveloped, you know, the NFL goes there, it's rugby league, there's everything about Wembley has sort of decreased. But the fact is, it is still Wembley. You know, it is still, everyone has their their memories their memories of Wembley and it's you know it, it, sorry I lost my train I lost my train of thought there no I, I know, I know what point. you mean yeah. there, there, there is something about Wembley um so I'm sort of torn a little bit um but I don't know I think maybe playing at Wembley is perhaps sometimes more important to the away team and it is the home team, and sometimes actually playing at Wembley brings more pressure on. Yeah. Um, I, I, 
I, I'm going to be interested to see what, what the reaction's like at Ellen Road. Um, it's for Costa Rica match, isn't it? Yeah. Um, just to see what the difference is um, in terms of sort of fan involvement, noise, that sort of thing. Um, unfortunately, though, I think it all comes back to money, doesn't it? Mm. Um, and a lot of sponsorship and deals have been done so I mean, what can you do I mean I think unfortunately you know Wembley is beautiful and everything but at the end of the day football's played there but it's also sandwiched in between Beyonce and, and monster truck racing I mean that's that's the modern world isn't it yeah yeah no stadium is really just a stadium anymore it's an arena no, no football ground is a football ground now. It's um, it's a multi-purpose, multi-purpose venue. But but your point about sponsorship and it's all being about money segues us excellently to our main debate for today, which is um, how much power and how much money is too much power and money from the likes of Sky Sports and BT Sport. Now this comes as a result of uh, Newcastle's game against Everton. Uh, there are other games as well, but because of Marcus, who was on the show for the last couple of weeks, he's a he's a Newcastle fan. He was going to go to the Everton game because he wants to go to Goodson Park. But now, less than a month before the game is due to take place, Sky have switched it from a Saturday afternoon, 3 o'clock, to a Monday night. Which now means that Marcus cannot go to the game, as can a whole number of Newcastle fans. Because... There's the understanding, and I don't know if it's official or it's or it's uh, unofficial, but you have to give six weeks' notice before any uh, before any uh, fixtures are changed uh, because of TV. So that's why they're always updated every two months or so. So my so my question is, um, and there's a point that I've had on Twitter and various other podcasts is. Do Sky and BT have the right to move these games and expect no, you know, and expect no uh, feedback from anyone else or no pushback when all when all the money generated in the Premier League and where every club seems to get their revenue from is from Sky and BT. So is it right for fans to protest or be against them moving games whenever they so choose, but then? All the players that they sign realistically comes from that money from the TV deal. You know, Colin, your thoughts on it? Um, predicament that that Marcus has found himself in is is no surprise to me. Um, Sky have the EFL football and um, the most shown team. In the EFL is is Leeds United. Yeah, the team. Um, I I can't say this for sure, but I'm pretty sure that most uh, more than half of Leeds' games don't kick off at three o'clock. I mean, and, and the the normal sort of midweek kickoff times as well. Um, every time the Sky fixtures come out, Leeds fixtures get changed. Um. So, I've sort of had to live with it. You, you mentioned about the Sky money being important and things like that. 
for a championship club like the ones that, that we support, Matthew, Fulham and Leeds, it doesn't help the clubs for them to be on Sky. Um, I think the fee is around £100,000 um, that Sky will on that. Um, I know from Leeds' perspective, the amount of money they lose because they're on Sky um, is more than what Sky pay them. Um, and Leeds have, you know, even going back to the Ken Bates era, have asked not to be on Sky. Um, that's just how, you know, crazy it is. Um, so I don't believe the idea that uh, um, Sky somehow is, is, you know, pumping money into all these championship clubs. I mean, if it is, then I, I certainly haven't seen it. Um, I think... At the end of the day, you've got to look at the, the, the Football League and the, the FA themselves and, and you know, Scudamore and all the, the fun guys at the Premier League and just say, have you... We already know the answer. Have they sold their soul to the TV channels to just let them be in charge of fixtures? And, and the answer is, yeah. Um, I mean, just from my perspective... Every away game that Leeds play at, I think, um, in living, you know, for, for, for as long as I can remember, has always been on a Friday at 7.45. Now, you, you work out how that happens, and then Leeds fans are meant to get from Brighton back to Leeds. I mean, it, it just can't happen, you know, via public transport. You've got to be on a, a private bus or drive there yourself um, so yeah it's, it's a problem but uh, no I'm, I'm no big fans of uh, Sky or BT Sport yeah but it's, it's more of a case of can the two can you know football fans and the money that it involves can they can they coexist you know all these fans are pressurising and saying that they're ruining the game by uh by moving these kickoff times to, you know, there's this going to be this introduction of a Saturday night football uh, coming in soon. They're moving games to Monday night or uh, or Friday night or one o'clock on a Sunday. They're talking about these killing the game, but in the same way, that money that they get for that game more to Premier League level. I'll you know I'll admit than at the Championship level because that's where all the money is. But you know, I've always said. If fans are so annoyed at uh, their fixtures being changed willy-nilly, then there's a simple there's a simple solution. Go to your club at the start of the year or the end of the or at the end of the season and say, right, next year we want all our games kicking off at 3 p.m. on a Saturday. In return, do not take a single penny of Sky or BT Sports money. Give it to charity. Give it back to the Premier League. Whatever. Is that the way that it has to be? Because you can't, you can't do You it. can't have both. But you can't have you can't both, though. That's what I'm saying. The Football League decide that. Leeds would happily take that. They'd bite your hand off. But, you know, Burton Albion wouldn't. So yeah. that's, that's the problem. You've got big clubs and small clubs. So Portsmouth would be in the same boat as Leeds United. They wouldn't want that. But... You know, I mean, if, if the question is, 
is Sky TV and BT Sport good for English football? That's a bit of another question. But for the EFL, we have iFollow for everybody who lives outside the UK and Ireland. Yeah. Anybody who supports one of the, what are we now? Are we the 72? Yeah. The Championship, League One, League Two, you pay £110 if you live outside uh, UK or Ireland and you get um, live HD stream um, of all 46 games uh, to your PC or TV or, um, with commentary and the coverage is really good. Um, now that is a good deal. So I would argue that that sort of model is probably going to be the future and Sky and BT, the way it's going at the moment, I think it's a little bit, it's also becoming, it's becoming a little bit draconian. Yeah, I sort of agree. James, I'm going to sort of bring you in on this. Do the TV companies in the Netherlands have as big a stranglehold on the clubs as they as they do in England. You know, I've got some figures in front of me, and Ajax for the 2016-17 season last year, um, their TV uh, revenue distribution was eight million euros. Now we consider mm-hmm. that the team that finishes bottom of the Premier League gets a hundred million. You know, is is there as much? animosity of the TV companies in in Holland as there is in England? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. When the fixtures are released here in the Netherlands, guys, the first port of call is the police and then the local councils. And then when the police and local councils are happy with the dates that have been set up, uh, the fixtures can be ratified. And once the fixes are ratified in terms of kickoff time and in terms of date, unless there's a calamity in a specific city or a national disaster, the match will take will take place at that particular time. As an Arsenal fan who attends matches from Amsterdam, I've also had my fingers burn from the Premier League in terms of them um, switching games at the drop of a hat. For example, this season I had my eye on going to the home matches against um, West Bromwich Albion and Brighton and Hove Albion. They were two consecutive home games, so I thought I'd be able to um, to make two maybe separate weekend flights. But uh, the West Brom West Brom game was moved from a Saturday to a Monday night, and then the Brighton game was moved to uh, from a Saturday to a Sunday afternoon. Also, potential European commitments play a play a part, but in my case, even as a Premier League, as the support of a Premier League uh, team, I have to be very, very careful about the games I choose because obviously it involves getting time off work and booking flights and all that kind of thing. Um, as regards to Everton and Newcastle, I believe that the Premier League set a precedent a couple of years ago when Leicester won the league and Arsenal were due to play Leicester. And due to the fact that Arsenal were Leicester's um, closest challenges, they moved that game to a midday kickoff on a Sunday, I think also within the notice period of one month, to attract more television viewers. Um, I think it's very dangerous going forward um, for the future. And I completely agree with Colin. I think these subscriptions that fans will have in different areas where they live will be the way forward, where people will log in 
on on their PC and, and stream the game live. But for the people that actually want to go to the matches and soak it all up, it's uh, it's proving more and more difficult. Um, just quickly, James, is there a staple kickoff time in the Netherlands? Like in England, we have Saturday three o'clock. Is there a similar sort of thing in in the Netherlands? Yes, uh, that refers to uh, half past two local time on a Sunday. But what they've done in recent years, Matt, is they've staggered the kickoffs. Where, for example, an Ajax against FC Utrecht will be at half past twelve because they, it's deemed a risk game due to the rivalry between the supporters. Uh, the late game on a Sunday afternoon um, is now played at uh, quarter to five local time. That's when it kicks off. And also for the teams involved in Champions League uh, commitments, they normally played their league games the previous Saturday around about um, around about quarter to seven, around about that time. But these problems that the Premier League fans are um, experiencing, it's also happening in other countries as well, like France and Spain. To give you an example, uh, not so long ago, Nice played Paris Saint-Germain at home on a Sunday at one o'clock. And the Nice supporters were so surprised by this decision that they decided to make light of the situation and organise a picnic at the stadium with picnic tables and, and, and giving a jovial atmosphere, basically saying that this is the time where you normally go out and have a picnic <laughs> in French. You're not, you're not going to necessarily watch a football match at one o'clock um, one o'clock in the afternoon in France. And, and if you look as well, in, in Spain, uh, the fixture list is ratified only two weeks before in terms of kickoff times. And, and more and more teams in different countries are, um, are having to deal with um, the pressures from the Asian market of games kicking off, for example, it's a, a quarter past four local time in, in Madrid or in Barcelona or in, um, or in Paris or in um, Berlin, for example. And it's, um, it's very worrying for the future, especially for the fans that want to go to attend matches. Yeah, and is there, is there a blanket, um, again, because uh, uh, we have a rule in England about I think it's I think it's across Britain. I'm not 100 percent sure if Scotland or Northern Ireland or the Republic come into this, but no football can be shown between I think it's quarter to three and half past and quarter past five in the afternoon, something like that, as a way to increase people to go to mat go to matches in person rather than have them sit at home watching the 3 p.m. games. It's a way to get them to the games. Do they have a similar thing? In, do they have a similar thing in Holland to stop fans you no know, sitting at home and watching the games, or is every single game available to every single person, sort of thing? More and more games are becoming available, but for the team, for the fans that are dedicated to their team, they released a fixture list back uh, in June, and that is ratified by the police and local councils. Only then is it presented to the public, and then, for example, if you want to go and watch Ajax against Willem's Bay in September on a Saturday night at quarter to seven, you can make your plans to go and watch that game knowing that it's not going to be it's not going to be changed at all. And that's for that's for the whole season. So I that's, could, for, that's for the whole season. So okay, so if so when the fixtures come out in June, say, and I wanted to go to an area division game in April, I could be absolutely guaranteed be sure that that game would kick off at the time advertised, unless, as you said, there's a disaster of some description. Yeah, or a calamity in the city, because what they do as well is, which they don't necessarily do 
in England because Colin touched on it earlier, um, earlier on in the pod when he said that when you know that certain football fans are coming, you don't go out. Here in the Netherlands, there's always they're always double checking. Are there any specific activities going on in certain cities? For example, The Hague, Rotterdam, Utrecht. Is there a special activity or festival that day? Does that coincide with a potential game? Mm. Because what they don't want is they don't want people that have pre-planned activities or people that live in rural areas like Swallow, for example, or Deventer, to be completely overrun with football fans from an urban city at a strange time during the day when people are um, encouraged to go out and enjoy their weekends. But the, just just to put in there, because this is a brilliant point, James, is that, and this shows the, the weakness about the, the whole English city for football and how we've sold out. The FA Cup final is on the same day in the same city as the royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Work that one out. How are you going to police that? I've, I'm going to say, yeah, they've worked out. Isn't the FA Cup final had to be, it's had to be moved to like quarter past five as well to to counteract the, the royal wedding, doesn't it? I, guess, yeah, well, I know, I know okay. what you're talking about. They are on the same day. Yeah, so that means there's more drinking time for all the FA Cup fans. Yeah, that's that's another thing because you know, you know speaking. No, so this, gonna, yeah, carry on, Connor, carry on. No, I was just going to say you can have a lot of Americans going, "Oh yeah, man, this is the new princess." You know what I mean? And then they're going to bump in. You know, they're they're going to be like, you know, oh, popping into the Pizza Express or whatever, or some fancy restaurants, and all of a sudden they're going to be faced with um, Dave. From Romford, who's who's already on thirteen pints, um, and it's like, how how, how are you going to manage that? I mean, I, it's 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 absolute insanity. Well, I, mean, I, think, I think the I think the failure is to plan ahead and to look ahead. Look ahead is worrying, and as you as you rightly said, Colin, as well to to sell your soul. I mean, if you look if you look at the Bundesliga, for example, the Bundesliga pyramid. The most important part of that pyramid is the German national team. That's it. Everything yeah. else, everything come, everything else comes afterwards, and hence why Germany are in the position where they're so strong at many, many youth levels. Um, I think it's only right that a country respects its um, its football fans and respects its pyramid. But I think another another subject for another time, maybe the, the commercialism in football as well. It's the pace is absolutely frightening. I mean, I mean, you can now buy any shirt of any club online on the internet, having never been to that club, not being aware of the history of that club, not being aware of what the emblem actually means. And, and when I go to Arsenal as well, I mean, obviously I, I was born in London, I, I now live in another country, of course, but obviously being born in North London and going to watch Arsenal as a young boy and as a teenager... I'm watching my local team, as far as I'm concerned. And then at Arsenal, I'm surrounded by people who come from everywhere, from Sweden, from France, from yeah. Australia. And naturally, they all want to enjoy, and everybody um, can do that. I've got no problem with that at all. But the rate of the commercial powerhouse means that we are in a situation where... Um, um, Everybody can do that. I've been fortunate enough to watch a game in South America in the Madagascar 
in 2015, I went to watch a local game between Flamengo and Bangu, and I stuck out like a sore thumb. The stadium was far yeah. from the, the stadium was far from capacity, but I stuck out like a sore thumb. The people were really nice to me. It was a great, wonderful, wonderful experience. But it just goes to show the differences between different continents as well. Whereas in Argentina, if you go to watch. Uh, Boca Juniors, if you go to watch River Plate, you're only going to be surrounded by people who are from that area and from that um, from that city, whereas in Europe now the commercialism is just so widespread that it's, uh, it's, a, little bit, um, it's a little bit scuffed in that respect, really. Yeah, I mean, just, just to dip in, Matthew, before you get on to your next point, I just want to, maybe we've reached a point, and I think this is where it's going to go, is that the Premier League, which is is the most watched league, isn't it? It's, it, it is, a, really. Yeah. Um, it's become a little bit X-factor, strictly condensing-ized. It's, it's more about the entertainment than necessarily the football, and more specifically, the fans, right? So I think at every single level... The fans come second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever. The money comes first. I mean, just go back to Wembley, which we had a little chat about previously. At the end of the day, they're quite happy to have a semi-final or a final. Let's say a semi-final between Manchester City and Manchester United, okay? Or it could be Wigan, Manchester City. To go on the same train to get to London, okay. There's no, there's no other way to get there. They're, they're on the same route, but all right, nobody cares. Let the police deal with that. Do, do you know what I mean? Whereas if you said, all right, we'll play maybe at Birmingham, or do, do you know what I mean? That, that sort of thinking, um, and it, it's, it's just, it's just disrespectful. I think it's of, you know, when the TV companies or the powers that be say, you know, we want you to jump. The football authorities just say how high. Yeah. Yeah. My my question to you though, Colin, is you talk about you know the FA Cup semi-finals being uh, being at Wembley and you know Man City and Wigan fans uh, having to come down as you say on the same route, and also combine that with the amount of money. Do you reckon there will be a stage where just overall the FA have so much money that they that every now and again. They'll be able to say, "Okay, this one we won't have at Wembley. Let's let's go somewhere else." Or do you think that we're basically stuck at Wembley until the end of time? No, I, I believe that if um, I, well, I think I think the FA is dead. The FA don't do anything for football. They they pretend they do. They get a bit of money, but um, or well, some people do. The the grassroots certainly don't. Um, if the Premier League thought it'd be a good idea to build a stadium in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, the, the FA Cup final would be there, or the final game of the Premier League would be there. I have absolutely no doubt about it. I mean, that's obviously a silly thing to say, but that's how ridiculous things are getting. Um, I'm not saying football sold its soul. Um, but I think it's maybe just moving into a sort of a, a new general. We've moved into a new technology age, and I would also say that 
although we're probably attacking Sky and BT at the moment and we're making them out to be the bad guys, um, I think that in football is short-lived. I think the likes of, you know, as we mentioned about iFollow, you know, for the EFL, but when someone serious picks it up like an Amazon, a Netflix, an Apple, and they can show any game, time, whenever they want, on demand, you can stream it, whether it be Burton Albion versus Rochdale or um, Ajax versus Rotterdam, and just at the press of a button, as long as you've got um, a package, then you can watch it. I think that's the future, and I believe those guys have got way more money than the likes of your Sky and your BT Sports. Yeah, I can I can absolutely see it going that way. Similar to the to the EFL I follow. Um, uh, n- neither of you guys are fans of American sports by any chance, are you? The NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, by any chance? Am I throwing that out? Uh, no, no. But I am a fan of uh, NASCAR. NASCAR. Okay. Um, they, they. Yeah, I think. I'm... I think they do the same thing. Is I've got. I've got it. I've got NFL Game Pass, and I've got MLB at bat, and it's it's it basically the same thing as I follow. I pay. I think it's a hundred pounds at the start of the year, and I can watch every single game, every single NFL game. But that's all controlled by the league itself, rather than the television companies. And I think if we are to to combine the two ideas, I reckon that the game streaming service won't be from a TV company. I reckon it'll be controlled by the league itself. So Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, for example. Um, um, Formula One. Yeah. Bernie Eccleston stepped down. Um, a sort of American-led uh, conglomerate has taken over, um, and they're trying to make it, you know, a bigger, broader base. Um, as of next year, you will not be able to see Formula One on terrestrial TV in the UK. Full stop. You know, you, you will have to have Sky Sports. Um, but what they are pushing, um, and in the US, what they've actually done is, in the US, Formula One isn't actually shown on TV. Because the TV channel, I don't know if it was, I can't remember which TV channel it was, NBC, but I'm guessing, that had the rights before, refused, because they also put out, um, as you say, an internet streaming service. So they said, well, we're competing with those guys. And, and I think in the same way that F1 have the brand and the rights and they'll distribute it their way, I think the Premier League, irrespective of what the EFL or the FA say, they'll just say, this is the way it shall be, you know, Yeah, I think that's good. Uh, James, any uh, final points you want to add to that? Uh, no, I, I, I think I think we've covered that. I think it's just that um, I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens in the future. But I think it's um, it's a warning sign for fans that actually want to attend the games that it's going to become more and more difficult. I mean, you mentioned about the uh, standard uh, seven forty-five kickoff on a Saturday night as of next season. 
then as an Arsenal fan, you know that if we're playing Manchester United or Chelsea, but that's highly likely to be the kickoff. And um, yeah, it's just about picking your games really, um, really, really carefully. And uh, yeah, it just makes it a lot more difficult in terms of uh, planning ahead. Really. Well, well, here's the thing, James. I mean, you've lived in the UK. You know, in Holland. Yeah. Have you, as an Arsenal fan, the club that you love? Do you feel that you've been priced out? Have you been pushed out by the club? Not necessarily priced out, but I really have to pick my games really carefully, Colin. Like, for example, uh, the last couple of seasons with the home games against Middlesbrough and against Watford and against... um, um, Going back a little bit with... um, um, Just trying to think off the top of my head, there's been quite quite a few. But to give those two, for example... Um, you know, you know, it's highly unlikely that those games are going to be moved from a three o'clock kickoff. So you can book a flight for a weekend and come home uh, for a weekend to see family and friends, and then go home and go back to work on Monday. But that's that's proving more and more difficult. But I've I've, I've reached a stage now where, especially coming from matches from the Netherlands, that I will just be as of next season really, really choosy. As to, the cho- as to the choices I make, and if that means me missing a fair few, then then so be it, really. Yeah. So you're so you're getting squeezed. Yeah, yeah. I would I would say so. Not. I mean, obviously you have to um, you have to save hard, of course. You know, it's, and uh, there's there's different. Whereas normal people would travel up on the train or on the or on the tube or anything. There's in my cases there's a there's a flight to catch and there's. Uh, and, and that kind of thing, you know, and, and the commitments with work, as other people also have. So it's just about a little bit of a squeeze and just trying to relieve the pressure a bit by um, by choosing the games really carefully uh, as to not have any problems going forward in terms of the games that, are, uh, that I choose. Okay, we done? We done on that? That very, in- very interesting debate. We all good? Yeah. Lovely. Good. So before we move on to our final topic, here's the reminder of the terms and conditions of listening to this podcast. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or through the Acast app. Listen out for Man on the Post Extra Time every weekend with Chris, Ryan, Jesse and Justin. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at Man on the Post. Right. Now, with that out of the way, the fluffy subject, as I put it in the WhatsApp group, Inverness Caledonian Thistle um, have released their new mascot, and it is Lionel Nessie. Obviously a play on words on the Loch Ness Monster. So what my question is to you guys is, what are the best and worst footballing mascots that you have seen? Obviously Lionel Nessie, I'm, I'm a lover of puns. I'm not a fan of Messi, but a lover of puns. There's a fine effort by Inverness Caledonian Thistle there. James, what football mascots stand out to you? Um, I, I agree. I think that's a, the fine play on words. Very, very clever. I think one that's always stood out for me, uh, West Bromwich Albion's Baggy Bird, because I think he's a bit of a maniac. I think he's had times where he's had um, he's had altercations with away fans and uh, and uh, the te- and the backroom staff of other teams and things. So he's sometimes been a little bit a little bit of a nutcase. So he's the one that's uh, that stood out for me. That's uh, West Bromwich Albion's Baggy Bird. Yeah. Colin, what about you? What have been your favourite mascots over the years? It's a load of all bollocks, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, does anybody really care under the age of 10? I can sort of understand it. I mean, 
there's only one mascot that stands out, and that's Gunasaurus, right? <laughs> At least he's got something about him. But how Arsenal have got any links to dinosaurs, I don't know. Um, but he's got something about him, right? So I'll, I'll give him kudos for that. Yeah, I um, yeah go on, Colin. Because say, say again? What were you going to say, Matt? Go on. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, uh, my uh, sort of... Um, the one mascot that's always stood out to me is Swansea's Cyril the Swan because obviously swans have very long necks and the people who designed the costume never quite got the design of it right so Cyril the Swan is always drooping head, he's always got a drooping head as if he's depressed so even when he's celebrating a goal his head's down just looking at the ground it's wonderful but on a personal level a couple of years ago Fulham was sponsored by an uh, internet company called dabs.com. This mm. was, yeah. And we had, no word of a lie, our mascot was a giant computer. <laughs> Seriously, go and look it up on. Go and get, Google it right now. You will not be disappointed. A smiling computer. It's of the ideas that went around everyone's head. It, you know, it sort of symbolised Dabs.com as a company because they were quite terrible. I only ever ordered one product from them. It was an MP3 player back in the days when MP3 players were the things before we had these fancy iPods flying around. It was an MP3 player. I bought it for Christmas and it didn't work. And that just summed up how... I'll, I'll send it to you in the WhatsApp group later, but the, the Dabs.com Fulham computers always stood out to me. I, I've got... Yeah, go on. Um, the the only time um, I was a victim of uh, credit card fraud um, was when someone used my details and tried to buy equipment at dabs dot com. Was it? Uh, it was about, <laughs> wow, it was about that's a connection. Thousand two hundred. I mean, I, I I got the money back. Oh yeah. I mean, it wasn't me. Good. But um, yeah, dabs dot com. Wow, that's a that's a strange connection that I, that I didn't know we had. Well, well, James, tell me, James, tell me you have a connection as well, just to just to complete the podcast. Please tell me. Uh, no, I have no connection to oh. Dabs.com. Oh, what a... <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. Ah. Uh, well, you... a, a very original idea to come up with a smiling computer, I must say. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's all nonsense, isn't it, to try and get kids to buy a shirt made in a sweatshop for, like three quid and flog it for like 40 quid do you know do you know what i mean that that's what i just get the feel for um in terms of worst mascots by the way um i'd also recommend barnsley um checking him out um it, it just seems to me that everyone's sort of getting in all stuff in the group oh we've got to have uh got to have a mascot now and barnsley have basically gone right just gone down the high street, got a bear suit, <laughs> put an extra, extra large kit on him, and it's just a, well, there's no other way of putting it, a boss-eyed bear, um, just wandering around in, like, a very big Barsley shirt. I'm not going to lie, it, it does look like a bear, now that, now that I look at it. That's not, because they're the terriers, aren't they? 
They're the, they're the terriers, aren't they? That's meant to be a dog, but no, it, that's oh, clearly no, no, a bear. Uh, oh, that's right. Huddersfield. I can swear Barnsley. Well, I can swear Barnsley are the terriers as well. I can swear oh, there's no, two of them. The tykes. Oh, yeah, the tykes. I thought it was Toby the tyke. Oh, okay. Well, sorry, anyone in Huddersfield who may be listening, but oh well. But, have but a more really, memorable mascot then. But really, it's just a, a fat fella in a, a bear outfit and a very big. Barnsley shirt um, with boss eyes. Yeah, they are boss eyed. All right, James, are, are mascots big in the Netherlands? What's the what's the most famous one? Well, if I can just name the uh, the top three traditional teams here in the Netherlands, the um, the mascot of Ajax is called Lucky because Ajax are often referred to as Lucky Ajax. The mascot of Feyenoord is uh, named after their famous player, Kulm Rulain, who was a famous winger who played for, um, for Feyenoord in, uh, in the 1970s. And he was uh, a very, very, um, uh, very, very quick player who was instrumental in Feyenoord's uh, first Europa, uh, European Cup success and also winning the uh, World Club Cup. And the, uh, the name of the PSV Eindhoven mascot is called Foxy. And that was chosen by the children of the PSV Eindhoven Kids Club, ages ranging from, I think, it was about 4 to 12 or something like that. And uh, they also have their links to uh, the, the technology giant Philips. So of the three traditional uh, teams, the three big teams here in the Netherlands, that's the names of the, uh, of the corresponding mascots. Good. Um, I, it, I'm afraid we can't pass over to the Dutch on the left-hand side this week because obviously there's been no uh, league football, although there has been a quick managerial change, hasn't there? Yes, uh, tonight uh, the news came through that Gert uh, Jan Verbeek, the, uh, the manager of Esther Twente, has been relieved of his duties and his assistant, um, uh, Marina uh, Puzink, will, uh, will take over from him. There's only six games remaining for Esther Twente to avoid direct relegation to the Dutch First Division. So it's looking a little bit bleak for them. And as our podcast was um, in real time, whilst the Netherlands friendly against Portugal in Switzerland was taking place, the Netherlands are currently 3-0 up uh, against Portugal in Geneva, with um, an Ian Barbel scoring and um, Memphis Depay scoring twice, I believe. So it's... Um, looking good for um, uh, no it's actually Virgil van Dijk who actually scored the third goal so it's van Dijk Depay and Ryan Barbel and so it's looking as if uh, Kool has managed to turn it around after the full start against England in Amsterdam last Friday good and that is that will be the last word on anything over the footballing weekend because we are out of time uh, I'd like to thank you once again for listening to the Man on the Post podcast you can follow us on Twitter at Man on the Post we all have our individual Twitter handles uh, Twitter handles as well um, all that's left for me to say is goodbye from me uh, at Matt Reese 63 it's a goodbye from James who is at James Rowe NL and it's a goodbye from Colin who is at CAS707. Okay, that's that's all of us. That's yeah, that's a goodbye from all of us here. And always remember to have your man on the post. <laughs>